Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Let me start at verse 17. I'm going to read straight through. Uh, Verse 17, show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Verse 19, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it that uh, to your, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, and you endure it. This is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, they did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you are returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, One of the things as I, uh, reading through this passage, uh, you know, we live, in a, uh, we live in a world that is marked by uh, injustice and abuse and manipulation and exploitation and the like. And so given that fact, a call to be a people of submission is kind of fraught with tension. You know, in a time when we uh, seem to be most aware and most conscious of uh, and appalled by uh, historic and contemporary abuses of power, the notion of submission has become more and more, I think, a foreign concept for many of us. Yet as we just heard in that passage, Peter calls Christians to be a people of submission. What are we to make of that call? Uh, and how does that call intersect and overlap with our demands and expectations of justice and righteousness? And ultimately, what does any of that, what does submission have to do with our call to be a public people with a public faith. Well, if you've been with us, we've been um, in a series that we've been calling A Public People. The church is a distinct community, and we've been looking at how Christians are called to be a distinct people in this world. And last week, we uh, took a look at what it means for Christians to live as exiles in this world, uh, exiles who faithfully seek the good uh, of the places in which they live, uh, but also realizing that the place where they live is not their true home. Our true home is not uh, the kingdoms of this world, but that we will only experience true home uh, in the kingdom of God, ultimately. And today, we're going to address one of the more challenging calls of the Christian as it relates to being a distinct community, is that, and that is to be a people of submission. And so to do so, I want to wrestle with the notion of submission uh, by considering why submission is necessary, why submission is controversial, and why submission is freedom. All right, so first, why is submission necessary? First, uh, let's begin with a rather paradoxical claim that Paul makes, or Paul, Peter makes in uh, verse 16. He says this, he says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. 
live as God's slaves, or other translations say God's servants. So in other words, he's saying, live as free slaves, which is interesting. Now, in a moment, I'm going to address the, what we're to make of the slavery language that's in this passage. So stay with me. Don't get distracted by it. We're going to get there uh, in a minute. But for now, consider what it is that Peter's arguing here. He is making the case that we should use our freedom to live as servants of God, and that as such, we should, according to verse 13, submit ourselves to earthly authorities. It's important to note here that he does not say, because you are submitted to God, you should not submit to earthly authorities. Rather, he says, precisely because you are servants of God, you should submit to earthly authorities. What are we to make of that connection. Well, let's first address the notion uh, that submission to authority is actually not all that controversial. We actually recognize that civilization and stability in civilization, for the most part, uh, in most facets of, facets of life, require some kind of submission to authority. You know, for example, we understand that submission to the governing authorities is necessary to ensure safety and security and the flourishing of a population. You know, if all the drivers in New York City opt to ignore the rules of the road determined by the state, we'd have chaos, which I guess, now that I think about it, sometimes that's probably the case. Um, but we also recognize that not submitting to those rules and those laws, it comes with consequences, right? Consequences that are necessary and that are the result of a lack of submission. And though there are certainly rules and laws that we find inconvenient, that doesn't mean that we're not required to submit them. The first thing that came to my mind as I thought about that is we are in tax season, people. And if you could ever imagine a more inconvenient system of laws, that would be it. And yet, I would highly recommend you not ignore that system of laws. Right? We understand submission right, to be in some ways necessary. I think about with parenting. You know, there's a lot of data, in, uh, both empirical and anecdotal, uh, that children need rules. They need structure. They need to learn obedience. It's incredibly unloving to a child to not help them learn how they're to, to live, how they're to develop a thinking mind, how they're to be a, a hard worker and to persevere through hard times and how to be respectful uh, and how to interact with those who think differently than themselves, right? Those things don't naturally come to us. They need to learn what it means to be under an authority that's guiding them, helping them learn how to live. And so at least in theory— we recognize that authority and submission to authority is not necessarily an issue. But Peter here, he's making more than just a, a pragmatic argument, meaning he's, he's saying more than uh, you know, that we should just submit to authorities because in the end it's going to produce good outcomes. Right? He's not just saying submit to every human authority because of what will be produced. But instead he's saying that for the Lord's sake— his people ought to submit to every authority. And it is that notion of every human authority that brings tension. Because Peter, he is not speaking of submission to a democratically elected government. He's talking about submitting to a pagan emperor here. He's not using a loving parent as an analogy of submission. Instead, he's using the analogy of an enslaver. This, of course, brings a far more controversial dynamic to the notions of submission. But believe it or not, the controversy is actually the point that he's making, which brings us, secondly, to why submission is controversial. 
All right, now before going any further, I do want to address, of course, the elephant in the passage, particularly this call for slaves to submit to their masters. Um, not only do we need to wrestle with what's being presented, but in doing so, I actually I think we're going to start to see the real message that Peter is communicating in this message of submission, and again, how it relates to Christians being a public people. So let me start here. Some argue that these types of passages are actually proof that the Bible can't be trusted. For example, this passage was often quoted by enslavers as a way of keeping the enslaved subservient. Plus, many claim that Peter here is just capitulating to the culture of the day when what he should have been doing is confronting systems of oppression of the day. And if in modern day we want to see true liberation, true freedom, we actually need to look elsewhere other than the Bible because for them, for those that would make this argument, the Bible just can't be trusted. It's obviously a book satisfied with oppression. Now, I want to first acknowledge that there's not completely unfounded tensions there because the Bible has been used to justify grave injustices like enslavement. But what I want to argue for a moment is that when Christians have perpetuated or justified oppression by using passages like these, they were actually doing so heretically, meaning they were perverting truth for their ends and being unfaithful to biblical teaching. So how do we handle a passage like this? Well, let's consider some really important things about slavery in the Bible. First, when we think about uh, the institution of slavery, we, of course, immediately think about the evil race-based chattel slavery of the 16th to 19th century in the United States in particular. But this is actually not the best framework for understanding slavery in the context of the Bible. Because first, in both the Old and the New Testament, uh, there is a bit of a translation issue when, uh, with the term slave. A better translation would often be a bond servant because of the, the nature of the slavery that we see in the Bible. This, this role of a bond servant was not necessarily and inherently a bad role to have. So in the, New, the uh, Old Testament, there were laws to ensure that uh, servants were well taken care of and given uh, legal protections against unjust treatment and sexual abuse. They were not kidnapped people, but often entered into this state willingly. They were not allowed to be tortured or abused. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 forbade the returning of a slave who had escaped uh, because if they no longer wanted to be there, they had every right to leave. They weren't property of the master. And so it is worth noting that the proponents of the wicked American slavery, of wicked American slavery, ignored those passages while defending their wicked system because their system is completely foreign to what we see in the Bible. But then you have the New Testament, and it should be noted that Roman slavery could actually be quite brutal. But Christians subverted the cultural norms of Roman society by essentially saying, you know, the, the apostles were calling Christians saying, Romans, if, if you are a Christian now, you no longer are allowed to treat your servants like everyone else does in your culture. In fact, in, uh, Paul in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4 essentially says that uh, masters, that you're to treat your servants justly and fairly with kindness, for God is both of your masters. He does not treat people. God does not treat people with partiality, and so you shouldn't either. And even in uh, Philemon, there's a call for masters to treat their slaves like a brother, if you're a Christian. 
Now, if Paul had been living in the time of American slavery, he would have rebuked American slave owners fiercely, a fierce, fierce rebuke, especially against enslavers who claimed Christ. In fact, their belief in a Jesus that would allow such injustice really does beg the question if they ever knew, ever knew Jesus at all. I mean, this is a foreign Christ to the Christ of the Bible. Why do I say that? Well, I want to point out that this entire section that we just heard read assumes that Christians are living under pagan authority. Their submission is a testimony before non-Christian pagan emperors and oppressors. And I note this because Christians who have used these passages to justify oppression, believing that God was on their side, they are actually, they actually set themselves up against God. Those heretical Christians were aligning themselves with the pagan oppressors of our passage that Peter is addressing. And I bring this up because whoever or whenever Christians are submitting to other Christians, there should be no tolerance of injustice and harshness. Rather, the appropriate response to a Christian oppressor would absolutely be nothing less than a harsh, harsh rebuke. So what we're seeing in our passage, I'm saying all this just to say, is very different than anything that we've seen uh, in our history. Now, all that said, nonetheless, why would Peter call everyone, including the enslaved, to submit to those who do not treat them well, particularly pagan oppressors. Well, I want to, again, draw on some reflections of someone that I've used before. Uh, Miroslav Volf wrote a wonderful commentary on First and Second Peter. If you recall from last time uh, I utilized him, Volf, he was a, a professor of theology at Yale University, but he also grew up as a Christian under communist oppression, uh, and witnessed the devastation of war in his homeland in Croatia. And one of the things that's important just to note, I mean, someone like Wolf understands the context of First Peter maybe better than we do. But in his con uh, commentary, he addresses the argument that uh, Peter was just accommodating the social norms of the day when what Peter should have been doing was confronting injustice. Uh, but again, Again, it's important just to note some conclude that Christians can't be trusted as a result of these issues. But Wolf, in thinking about this, says that in their submission to their pagan oppressors, okay, Christians are actually confronting and challenging the very political structures that necessitate the, the submission to begin with. He actually argues that if we are offended by what we're reading here in our passage, we actually have been completely blinded by our own liberal, modern, cultural blinders. And this is what he says, and I have it here for you. You can follow along. He says, If the injunction to be subject appears at first to function as a religious legitimation of oppression— Let me just stop there. Academics always say things way more complicated than they need to be said— all that just means is it seems like Peter's justifying oppression here, if that's what it seems like he's doing. It turns out, in fact, to be a call to struggle against the politics of violence in the name of the politics of the crucified Messiah. Let me just pause there for a minute. In other words, the very act of submission is itself an act of political rebellion against violence and injustice because it most reflects the nature and the character of Jesus. But then he goes on to say, moreover, First Peter is sensitive to the possible injustice of the existing order, contrary to Aristotle, who believed that there can be no injustice towards slaves. Christian slaves were suffering unjustly. Let me just pause there for a minute. In other words, the claim that an enslaver 
can act unjustly toward uh, an enslaved, the enslaved, is actually a Christian idea. Right? At the time, you couldn't actually treat a slave unjustly. For Christians, that absolutely was not the case. And so this idea, this whole idea of justice when it came to slaves was a Christian one. He goes on to say, right, with that in mind, he concludes this. This is where I want to uh, land. We should keep in mind, however, that the call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familiar structures that direct exhortations to revolutionize them would, have, would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. That is what Peter is getting at. In verse 19, if you remember, he says, For it is commendable for someone, for if someone bears under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your, your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable for before God. The very act of submission and a willingness to suffer for what is good becomes a testimony to and a condemnation of those that are in authority. Because violent revolution, that is the way of the kingdoms of this world. And it says nothing about the God that Christians serve. But peace and honor and submission are means of revolution because they shame the oppressor and proclaim the way of another kingdom. And the best example of this that we can point to in our own modern day is the civil rights movement. I mean, the, the dyna this dynamic was found in the civil rights movement. It's what made the civil rights movement as effective as it was. That movement was a deeply Christian movement that saw its activism rooted in the example of Jesus. It was a perfect example of what it means. So if you suffer for good, for doing good, and endure it, this will be commendable before God. Right? Such a witness shames oppressors, bring glory, brings glory to God, and in the long run shapes and changes the system. And for what it's worth, such a witness and work continue to be very necessary even today and will always be necessary. The civil rights movement embodied what Peter is describing and calling Christians to do here. But what does all of that then, all, right, all that said, what does that have to do with us today? especially as we consider this notion of ancient uh, slavery and ancient pagan emperors. Well, Peter is giving this extreme example of what should be a regular rhythm for us. Meaning, if we can see how we should act toward pagan emperors and slave masters, how we act toward everyone else actually becomes much more clear. Think about it this way. Um, think about weightlifting. Right, so it's kind of like training your body to be able to bench press 300 pounds, which is a pretty extreme feat. When you're able to bench press 300 pounds, everything else becomes a lot easier, does it not? Anything less than that becomes easier. And so in a lot of ways, emperors and slave masters are like a 300-pound bench press. That actually instructs us, builds a bit of a strength. If we can do such a thing before the slave masters, and the emperors. There's a lot then that can be learned about how we interact with anyone who might be a little bit less than a pagan emperor or an enslaver. 
And there's two key outworkings, two areas of strength that I think we very much build up when we can see how we're to interact with those kinds of extremes and how that then shapes how we interact with everyone else. Two things that are in our passage. Number one, when we understand submission, we begin to understand what it means to be a people of honor. And then secondly, we start to see how we become a people of service. Being a people of submission will make us a people of honor and service. Let me explain to you what I mean. First, with honor. Look at uh, verse 17. We are told there that we are to fear God, but honor the emperor. What does that mean? Well, God is to be feared, not as someone that we're scared of, but as someone who is due all of our obedience, all of our worship, all of our allegiance. The emperor, who at the time would have been worshipped by his subordinates, is to be honored, not feared. There's a distinction being made there. They're to be honored as those who bear God's image, an honor that is due to all people. This means that we are to treat them with dignity and respect, but with a particular respect, given that they hold a temporary authority, uh, one to which they are ultimately accountable to God. So Christians know that we are to be a people of honor, dignity, and respect. It's kind of key to this passage. Part of being a people of submission is to be a people of honor, dignity, and respect to others. But then the second thing that we see here, and maybe even more important to the notion of submission, is that we're also to be a people of service. Uh, Something that's interesting about our passage actually gets missed in our English translations. Uh, uh, Translators are actually uh, really unhelpfully imprecise uh, in the translation that we just heard read. So look at verse 16. In verse 16, we are told to live as God's slaves. Now, that word slave there is doulos. And doulos is, it kind of comes with everything that we imagine slavery to be. It's this full and complete role of subservience. But then in verse 18, a different word is used, uketi. The uketi were household or domestic servants that would have been educated. They would have been doctors and teachers and musicians and more. They worked for the good of their masters. It was a role of service. And in the words of, you know, the famous words of Jeremiah 29, I mean, these were roles where you were seeking the peace and prosperity of the home in which you lived. Now, I don't want to draw this out too much, but I do think Peter's change in language there is very intentional. Because in his change of language, there does seem to be a distinction between the kind of submission one gives to God and the kind of submission one gives to earthly authorities. Right? We are truly doulos before God, fully and completely submitted to him as though we were slaves. And again, I know that language might make us cringe a bit, but Christians understand what it means to be doulos before God. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that we are not our own, but that we have been bought with a price. Romans 14 commends us that if we live, we are to live for the Lord. And if we die, die for the Lord. So that whether we live or die, we remember that we belong to the Lord. Right? Christians understand the joy of truly belonging to God. The one who has bought us with a price. A price that we will consider in a moment. But I do wonder if Peter's change in language signals a different relationship that we are to have in our servanthood to others who are not God. To be uketi is, is, it's a role of service. It's to seek the good of others, even those who don't deserve it. You know, verse 18, again, uketi, 
In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Seek their good. Seek the good of those who even, even those who do not seek your good. I mean, Christian, hear me. This call to submission is it's not some passive willingness to be abused or, or mistreated by the authority of others. It's a call to be a people of honor and respect. It's a call to be a people who seek the good of others, even those who do not seek our good. And how might that posture, think about how might that posture shape how we exist in this world? Seeking the good of everyone that might be around us, all the way up to that 300-pound bench press of oppressive emperors and slave masters, all the way down. How does that change our posture? You know, if we were to be a people of honor, respect, and service, how might that shape our interpersonal relationships? How might being a people of respect and honor impact our political discourse? How might it impact the, pre the presence that we have within our communities? Are we a people of honor, seeking the good of others? Are we a people that have that kind of heart of submission? Because more often than not, of course we know, the answer is no. All right, we are not naturally this way. More often than not, we are not seeking the good of others. More often than not, we're seeking our own good, or our own flourishing, our own successes, or we only seek the good of those who seem to be seeking the good of us. And ironically, that actually makes us a slave to our pursuits of our own selfishness, our own self-interests. We are not living free as free slaves before God, but as slaves bound to many other fickle masters. And so I want us to consider that if we live that way, right, if we do not live as free slaves before God, and as a result become a people of respect and honor and service in this world, I want us to see why such submission actually leads us to the freedom that we desire. Lastly, why is submission freedom? Did you notice where Peter roots his entire arguments about submission and service? Because if, if Peter had just presented this idea of submission, it, feels, it falls really flat. And actually, it does kind of feel a little bit oppressive. But look at where he roots his arguments. All right, verse 21. To this, this submission, you were called. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What is happening there? I mean, we are seeing Jesus, the truly innocent one, accomplish salvation. How? Through submission. By submitting himself to those who did not seek his good but rather to those who murdered him on a cross. He experienced unjust suffering as the sinless one being treated like the sin-filled one, the one who did not retaliate when insults were hurled, the one, hurled the, the one who bore our sins on his body so that we might die of our sins and live for righteousness. The one, according to verse 21, Jesus is the one who suffered for you. 
This is the God to whom we fully submit as doulos. And in that submission, we experience freedom, a freedom that Christ has accomplished for us. And as a result, we now are free to reflect that freedom by being a people of honor, a people of service in this world, with everyone that we may come in contact with, reflecting the character of Jesus. I mean, this approach to freedom, we recognize, is totally counterintuitive to the ways of the world. You know, this is why uh, Paul, when speaking of the cross, he says that the cross, for some, it's a stumbling block. For others, it's foolishness. Unless you've experienced the freedom of submission, the freedom that's made available to us by the cross in Jesus, none of it makes any sense. But in the kingdom of God, right, the upside-down kingdom of God, everything that we assume to be right in this world is actually flipped upside down. In the kingdom of God, right, the powerful and the strong are not the ones who are exalted, but rather the powerless and the weak. In the kingdom of God, the violent and the vengeful do not accomplish peace but rather it's the peacemakers and the gentle who experience peace. It's love, not hate, joy, not spite, peace, not animosity, patience, not intemperance, kindness, not anger. It's goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the reflections of the kingdom of God. And a posture of service and submission is the path toward that freedom. And because Jesus, our Savior, took that path, we are now empowered to do the same. So as a public people, with a public faith, we are being called to be a people of submission. And that means going out into the world, being a people of honor and respect. Are Christians known for being a people of honor and respect? Broadly, I don't know. But for Redeemer East Harlem, can we be known as a people of honor and respect of other people? But also to be a people of service. Can Redeemer East Harlem be known as a church that seeks the good of others? Even those who do not treat us well, who are not for our good, are we seeking their good? We can do this because Jesus has done it for us and by his spirit empowers us to go out and do the same. May the spirit of God help us make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Jesus, we see the perfect picture of submission. We don't see submission in Jesus as weakness or um, a, willing, a simple willingness to allow injustice to occur, but we see in Jesus a submission that through weakness comes strength. Through injustice comes justice. Through death comes life. This is the way of your kingdom. And in Jesus... We have experienced true freedom. As we submit to him, we are set free to now live fr as free people who are slaves to you. Lord, as those servants before you, you call us to now go and reflect the character of our Savior in the world in which we live. To reflect the character our, of our Savior before pagan emperors and harsh enslavers but also amongst all the people that we interact with. Call us to be a people of honor and respect, seeing the dignity of every person we interact with, and also to be a people of service who seek their good, even when they do not seek ours. 
Lord, this is not a task that we can accomplish in our own power. It is a task that only is accomplished by the empowerment of your spirit. And so we ask that your spirits would empower us to be this public people. Would you do it, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.